So we made a deal. 41st Street in Tulsa is kind of the halfway between north and south. And Phyllis could have the south half of 41st Street, 41st and south. And I get 41st and north. And we would meet at home from time to time and visit. And do our drinking. She does hers there. I do mine over here. Got a good deal. And that went on for a long time. And uh, I had a little mobile home up on the, a lake west of our city. And and uh, one night, Gail and Phyllis showed up there at 3 o'clock in the morning and embarrassed me in front of my girlfriend and stuff. And that was uh, another situation. Just kill me. Just really, just just kill me to have that sister. How are you going to make amends to a little old girl for that? How, what are you going to say? A remorseful mumbling that I'm sorry, is that going to do it? No. She'd heard that from us before. But she got married when she was about 17 years old and began to have her children. And, and Phyllis and I are getting sober now and early in our sobriety. And what we did was that we, we were there every time she had a child. We were at the hospital. We lived sober and did the right thing. See, I wasn't a very good father, but I'm a damn good grandfather, I can tell you that. And I'm that, and Phyllis is a great-grandmother. And after two or three years of this, they move off to Ohio. Phyllis and I talked it over, and we didn't mind Gail and Jim moving, but they took our grandkids with them. <laughs> and up there, after a year or two up there, something happened to her sister-in-law, who was young, 32 years old, and died and left three kids to her husband. And, and Gail called us one night, and she said, Papa, I said, yeah. She told me this story. She said, but if something was to happen to Jim and I, would you and Mom take the kids? Uh, that's when I knew it was okay with us. A remorseful mumbling that I'm sorry won't cut it. But living sober, doing the right thing, being there, that will do it. The action is a whole lot more better than words. And that happened with us. And today we have a good relationship together. They're back in Tulsa now. But after you've done all you can do to make amends, there comes a day when you say, I'm not making any more amends. Well, you see, we'll make each other pay forever if we'll pay. Someday you quit making amends. You quit being the guilt, feeling that guilt, shame, remorse. Because we'll put it on each other and make each other feel bad forever. Someday you say, hey, I'm not paying no more. That's it. Through. Okay. We've uh, read way back in the book the beginning of step four. It said we're spiritually ill, mentally ill, and physically ill. And that's referring to the three dimensions of life. All human beings are born to live in three dimensions. We have the dimension of the Spirit. And if God dwells within each of us, and that means we're going to have to live with God whether we like it or not, it's beside the point. The only question is, do we live there in harmony or disharmony? I don't know of any group of people in the world that ever got in more disharmony with God than we alcoholics have. We have also what they call the mental dimension. We all have a mind. And we're going to have to live with our mind. Whether we like it or not is beside the point. We don't have any other choice. The only question is, do we live there in harmony or disharmony? I don't know of any group of people that ever got in more disharmony in their own minds than we alcoholics have. We also have what they call the physical dimension. Now, for years, I thought that dealt with my body only. But the physical dimension is the world and everything in it. The physical dimension is not just my body. But your body, my wife's body, my children's body, my job, my car, my bird dogs, my everything. And we don't have any place to live except here on earth. Whether we like it or not is beside the point. The only question is, do we live here on earth in harmony or disharmony? I don't know of any group of people in the world 
that ever got in more disharmony in the physical dimension than we alcoholics did. We were sick spiritually, mentally, and physically. There's also a statement in the big book which talks about this program is a design for living that really works. And one day we got to looking at that design for living, comparing it to the three dimensions of life. And it looks to us as though the first nine steps are designed to put us back together as God intended for us to be in the first place. Through steps one, two, and three, we get right with God. You know, because we were powerless, we saw the need for the power, and we made a decision to go after that power. And that put us in the right relationship. God is going to be the director. He's the father, we're the children. He's the employee, we're the employee. First time we've had that relationship with God. For most of us, the first time in our life. Now, that removed just enough self-will to let us start looking into our own minds and see what was going to block us off from carrying out this decision that we made in step three and through four, five, six, and seven. We found all those character defects that create our problems for us. Talked about them to another human being. Began to work on them in six and seven. We began to get well in the mental dimension through steps four, five, six, and seven. That removed just enough self-will to let us start reaching out to our fellow man. And through steps eight and nine, we got right with the world and everybody in it. And we are no longer sick people. If you're right with God in one, two, and three, if you're right with yourself in four, five, six, and seven, if you're right with your fellow man in steps eight and nine, then you have put been put back together the way God intended for you to live in the first place. A design for living that really works. And if you're right with God and right with yourself and right with your fellow man, you're probably going to feel pretty good. And I don't think it's by accident the very next thing in the big book, at the bottom of page 83, happens to be the promises that we're always reading. Let's take a look at them for just a moment. If we're painstaking about this phase of our development, we will be amazed before we're halfway through. We're going to know a new freedom and a new happiness. We will not regret the past and wish to shut the door on it. We will comprehend the word serenity and we will know peace. No matter how far down the scale we have gone, we can see how our experience will benefit others. That feeling of uselessness and self-pity will disappear. We will lose interest in selfish things and gain interest in our fellows. Self-seeking will slip away. Our whole attitude and outlook upon life will change. Fear of people and economic insecurity will leave us. We will intuitively know how to handle situations that used to baffle us. We will suddenly realize that God is doing for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Are these extravagant promises? We think not. They are being fulfilled among us sometimes quickly, spiritual spirits, sometimes slowly, spiritual awakening. They will always materialize if we work for them. I'm going to read them again. I read them the second time for two reasons. Number one, I love the way I read them. (laughs) Number two, I'm going to add some words to them. And the words I'm going to add to them refer to a time when I was young. And when I could drink alcohol and be Fred Astaire on the dance floor. 
and the world's greatest lover in the back seat of a 36 Chevrolet. This is the way alcohol used to make me feel before it turned against me and literally destroyed me. Whenever I took a drink of alcohol, I knew a new freedom, a new happiness. Whenever I took a drink of alcohol, I did not regret the past or wish to shut the door on it. Whenever I took a drink of alcohol, I would comprehend the word serenity and I'd know peace. Whenever I took a drink of alcohol, no matter how far down the scale I'd gone, I could see how my experience would benefit others. (laughs) Whenever I took a drink of alcohol, that feeling of uselessness and self-pity would disappear. Whenever I took a drink of alcohol, I would lose interest in selfish things and gain interest in my fellows. Whenever I took a drink of alcohol, self-seeking would slip away. Whenever I took a drink of alcohol, my whole attitude and outlook upon life would change. Whenever I took a drink of alcohol, fear of people and of economic insecurity would leave me. Whenever I took a drink of alcohol, I would intuitively know how to handle situations which used to baffle me. Whenever I took a drink of alcohol, I would suddenly realize that alcohol was doing for me what I could not do for myself. Now think about that for a minute. My God, no wonder I became obsessed with the idea of drinking alcohol. When you find something that will do this for you, over and over and over and over again, you're going to become absolutely obsessed with the idea of using it. And for several years, alcohol was my friend. So for several years, alcohol allowed me to function in society. When I look back at it now, I don't believe I could have functioned in society without alcohol or something to give me these kind of feelings. But then one day, my friend alcohol turned against me. And all the things I was afraid would happen to me now begin to happen because of the alcohol. And I became a very, very confused individual. Not knowing I was alcoholic. Not knowing I would never be able to recapture these things from alcohol. I spent the last five or six years of my drinking desperately trying to recapture these things. And alcohol almost destroyed me. And I came to AA, and you handed me a book called Alcoholics Anonymous. And I began to apply that program in that book in my life. And one day I woke up with these promises in my mind. And they don't deal with the body, they're all in my mind. I woke up with these promises in my mind. And I said to myself, you know, these first nine steps have given me everything good that alcohol used to give me. That's why I don't drink. If I hadn't found them here, I'd still be looking for them. I'd be dead somewhere. But you see, I don't need to drink because the first nine steps through these promises have given me everything good that alcohol ever gave me before. That's the miracle of Alcoholics Anonymous. And with that thought came another thought. So far, the first nine steps have never turned against me as alcohol did. I've never been placed in jail because of the first nine steps. No woman has ever drugged me through a divorce court because of the first nine steps. I've never had the hell beat out of me because of the first nine steps. Damn near did a time or two, but never really because of the first nine steps. You see, that's the miracle of Alcoholics Anonymous. And if you look at them, they all deal with the mind. None deal with the body. Now, we come here restless, irritable, and discontented. We come here filled with shame, fear, guilt, and remorse. We come here very selfish, dishonest, self-seeking, frightened, and inconsiderate people. We come here as very angry individuals. Now, if we've gone from that state of mind to the state of mind called out in these promises then surely we have undergone a great change in our personality. A personality change sufficient to recover from alcoholism. Surely we've had a spiritual experience or a spiritual awakening right here.
Now, if that's true, then what is the purpose of the last three steps? And a lot of people will tell us they are maintenance steps. Well, I'll agree that they're going to help us stay sober. But the word maintenance itself is a misnomer. To maintain something means to keep it as is. And another law in our universe applies here that says nothing in our universe ever stays as is. Everything in our universe is in a constant state of change. It's either growing or it's dying. It's progressing or it's regressing. You watch a beautiful tree grow. And it grows and grows and grows, and every day it gets more beautiful. Until one day it quits growing. And the day it quits growing, it begins to die. And it reverts back to where it came from. The human body is one of the most miraculous things that God has ever produced. And it grows and grows and grows till it gets to be about 19 years old. And then it quits growing. And the day it quits growing, it begins to die. And eventually reverse back to where it came from. Everything that's true in the material world is also true in the mental world, the emotional world, and all areas of life. If I tried to stop here and maintain these promises in my life and grow no further, then after a while I start slipping back. Next thing you know, I start having trouble with people. Next thing you know, I start having trouble with me up here. Next thing you know, I'm blocked off from God. And next thing you know, I'm drunk all over again. I am convinced in my mind this is what happens to people who have had a good program and they're 20 and 25 and 30 years sober and they quit coming to AA and they quit growing. And they end up getting drunk out there too. We see it, we see it happen to people all the time who are good members of AA, they simply quit growing. You can't coast uphill. You can only coast downhill. Let's look at the last three steps for just a few minutes, and let's see if we can't see the growth factor rather than the maintenance factor. See, one thing we did as a fellowship is we took all the steps out of the book, put them on these little cards, put them on the wall, and I like them on, the, on these little cards and on the wall. There's nothing wrong with that. The only thing is that we left the instructions on how to work the steps in the book. People come into AA and they try to take the steps off these cards or off the wall and miss the whole point. And if you're trying to take the steps off the wall and you read, come to step 10, it would say continue to take personal inventory and when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. It looked like if you were wrong and you promptly admitted it, you were doing the intent of step 10. Somehow or other, we got the idea that step 10 is to be done at night while in bed. Well, I've talked this over a great deal with Charlie, and I don't get in trouble at night <laughs> while, in, <clears throat> while in bed. The nighttime portion of the steps over step 11, anyhow, is not even in step 10. So let's look at the, the growth factor in step 10. <clears throat> so this thought brings us to step 10 which suggests that we continue to take personal inventory and continue to set right any mistakes as we go along. We vigorously commence this way of living as we cleaned up the past. We have entered the world of the Spirit. We've had a spiritual experience or a spiritual awakening. Our next function is to grow. To grow. Not maintain, not stay where we are, but to grow. In understanding and in effectiveness. Now, this is not an overnight matter. It should continue for our lifetime. Continue to watch for selfishness, dishonesty, resentment, and fear. What step did we use to do that in the first place? Anybody remember? Step four, step four okay. When these crop up, we ask God at once to remove them. What steps did we use there? Six and seven. Six and seven, okay. We discuss them with someone immediately. What step was that? Five. Five. And make amends quickly if we've harmed anyone. What steps did we use there? Eight and nine. Then we resolutely return our thoughts to someone we can help. Love and talents of others is our code. You know, it looks to me like if we do step 10 the way the big book says, we're going to be doing steps 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, and 9 on a daily basis for the rest of our life. 
I would defy anybody in this room to do steps four, five, six, seven, eight, and nine on a daily basis and stay the way you are. You absolutely cannot do that. See, I've got that little inventory sheet up here in my head. I can see it just as plain as day. And if I get screwed up about nine o'clock in the morning, it doesn't make any sense for me to wait till I go to bed at night to do something about it. Because if I'm screwed up at 9 o'clock, I've cussed two or three people out by 11 o'clock. <laughs> two or three's cussed me out by 2 o'clock. By night time, I'm a basket case and I've wasted another day. What I have finally learned to do, it's taken a long time to do it, but I finally learned that if I get screwed up about 9 o'clock in the morning to stop, get off in the corner by myself. Okay, Charlie, who are you mad at? What did they do to you? Which part of self is affected? What did you do, if anything, to set it in motion? Which character defect has come back to the surface? I can't get really upset unless that old selfish, dishonest, self-seeking, frightened, or inconsiderate human being has come back to the surface. I can spot it just like that. I turn to God and I say, okay, God, you know I don't want to be this way. Please take this dishonesty away from me or this inconsideration, whatever it is. Please take this away from me. Discuss it with someone as soon as I can. He says immediately, sometime we can't do it immediately. As soon as I can, preferably my sponsor if I can do so. And then I make amends quickly if I've harmed anyone. 15, 20, 30 minutes, the whole thing is gone. And the rest of the day is okay. I've wasted all the time I want to waste in anger and resentment and fear and that kind of crap. I don't feel good when I'm that way. It blocks me off from God and my fellow human beings. It makes me sick. And I don't have to feel that way anymore. Now, you absolutely cannot do Step four, five, six, seven, eight, and nine. Over and over and over again. And stay the way you are. You just can't do that. Twice in the big book, Bill talks about a fourth dimension of existence. Once in his story, once in chapter two. Now, the normal three are the spiritual, the mental, and the physical. And we got right and well in all three of those through the first nine steps. But there's another dimension of existence far, far beyond the normal three that we never dreamed existed. And you can't explain it and you can't understand it. You can only grow into it. And that's what this step is for. And as our relationship with God gets better and better, as our relationship with ourself gets better and better, as our relationship with our fellow man gets better and better, then we move into an entirely different dimension of living. And thank God there's no end to it. Because you see, if there was an end to it, I would get bored. And I would quit doing it and I would be in trouble. But it's fascinating for me today to see just how far we can grow in this thing. Just how much better our relationship can become with God and ourselves and our fellow human being. A very definite growth step to move us into another dimension of living. Now, this is another reason you don't need to be too concerned about doing a perfect job in step four. Because you're going to be doing this inventory thing the rest of your life. So do the best you can in four and get on with the rest of the program, and then you'll come to step ten. And we'll be re-inventorying from now on. A definite growth step, Joe. Once we do this for a while, we get some more promises. And our book said that we've ceased fighting anything or anyone, even alcohol. For by this time, sanity will have returned. Remember it said on step two that we came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity? Well, we get our sanity back on page 84. We, now we're restored to sanity. And once we have our sanity back, 
he says we will seldom be interested in liquor. If tempted, we recoil from it as from a hot flame. We react sanely and normally, and we find this has happened automatically. We will see that our new attitude toward liquor has been given us without any thought or effort on our part. It just comes. That's the miracle of it. We're not fighting it, and neither are we avoiding temptation. We feel as though we've been placed in a position of neutrality, safe and protected. We're not even sworn off. Instead, the problem has been removed. It did not, does not exist for us. We're neither cocky nor are we afraid. That is our experience. That's how we relax as long as we keep in fit spiritual condition. And remember back on page 45, it said the main object of this book was to enable me to find a power greater than myself which would solve my problem. Didn't say it would help me solve my problem. Said would solve my problem. Well, somewhere between page 45 and 85, there's the steps. I worked the steps. And one day I looked up and looked around and said, what happened to that great obsession that I used to have to drink? It was gone. Just gone. That's the miracle of it. Those times prior to AA, I had a forced sobriety. And I don't know about you, but sometimes I'd be sober and be thumbing through a magazine and I'd see a picture of a bottle of whiskey in there. Just a picture. Water running down the sides, cold. My mouth would water. Phyllis said I slobbered a lot. <laughs> Just looking at a picture. That's the kind of obsession to, to drink that I had. And what happened? It just went away. See? God removed that from me, evidently. I'm not tough like some people who can do it a day at a time and, and stay sober one day at a time. And God had to remove the obsession to drink from me in order for me to stay sober. I'm just not that tough. Now it says, now it's easy to let up on a spiritual program of action and rest on our laurels. You know, by this time, things are pretty good. By the time you get around to this part of the program, things are good. If you're lucky, you may be back home. If you're real lucky, the dog's not biting you anymore. <laughs> if you're really, really lucky, you may be back in the bedroom. You see? Things are pretty good. Going to work regularly, getting a full paycheck at the end of the week, making more money, doing good. Probably a lot of people move into a new house, buy new furniture, buy a new car, all on credit, by the way. <laughs> and we find ourselves, uh, things begin to kind of compete for our sobriety. We have to work more overtime to pay for them, you know. Work nights and weekends. We kind of get too busy to go to AA. We rest on our laurels. Charlie said a while ago, we can only coast downhill. If we're not careful, those things will compete for our sobriety, and they will get your sobriety too. If you're too busy to go to AA, you're just too busy. That's all I can tell you. We're headed for trouble if we do. For alcohol is a subtle foe. We're not cured of alcoholism. What we really have is a daily reprieve contingent on the maintenance of our spiritual condition. There's the word maintenance. One day at a time. We can't maintain forever, but we can do it one day at a time. Every day is a day when we must carry the vision of God's will into all of our activities. How can I best serve thee? Thy will, not mine, be done. These are thoughts which must go with us constantly. We can exercise our willpower along this line all we wish. It's the proper use of the will. We get our willpower back on page 85. We've been saying all weekend the willpower is no avail to us. God never gave us anything that was bad. He gave us willpower for a purpose. We get our sanity back on page 84 and our willpower back on page 85. Wouldn't it be awful to have our willpower and no sanity? The way it was, and don't know what to do with it. And again, it says, How can I best serve thee? Thy will, not mine, be done. These are thoughts which must go with us constantly. We can exercise our willpower along this line all we wish. It's the proper use of the will. God gave us willpower for a reason, and that's it right there. It's the proper use of the will. Only thing is, I misused the willpower and didn't know that. Now, Much has already been said about receiving strength, inspiration, and direction, not suggestion, from him who has all knowledge and power. 
if we've carefully followed directions, not suggestions, we've begun to sense the flow of His Spirit into us. To some extent, we've become God conscious. We've begun to develop this vital sixth sense. But we must go further, and that means more action. Now, here we're talking about God consciousness as being a vital sixth sense of direction. You know, everything I've learned on a conscious level, I've learned through five senses of direction. I can see, I can smell, I can taste, I can hear, and I can touch. Those are the five senses of direction. And about everything we learn on a conscious level, we learn through one of those five senses. Now, you can take everything I know and everything Joe knows and everything you guys know and everything every human being on earth knows and add it all together. And it's just a tiny, tiny speck of information compared to the knowledge of the universe. Now, if God has all knowledge and all power, and I'm convinced He does because my book says so, if God dwells within each of us, I'm convinced He does. Our book says so. And that means you and I have within ourselves all the knowledge and all the power that we can ever need to handle any conceivable situation which might come up in the future, provided we know how to tap into that knowledge and that power. The sixth sense of direction or God consciousness been known for thousands of years how you do this. You do it through prayer and meditation. <clears throat> Most of us, when we come to AA, we're absolutely bankrupt in those areas. I knew nothing about meditation. Oh, I had read in places where it might be lying down and listening to soft music, where it might be chanting certain words over and over where it might be clearing your mind of all thought. And I don't know about you, but I know about me. I've never been able to clear my mind of all thought. I get up in the morning, that sucker turns on, and it runs all day. I've never been able to stop it. I knew nothing about meditation at all. And even being raised in church, I knew very little about prayer. When I got to AA, I had two prayers. One of them went like this. Now lay me down to sleep, I pray the Lord my soul to keep. And if I die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. I don't even like that prayer anymore. (laughs) It's dealing with death, and I'm not into that at all. The other one I used, and I'm sure some of you used it too, went like this. God, if you'll get me out of this damn mess, I swear I'll never do this again. Now, it would seem to be an impossibility for me to be able to develop a life of prayer and meditation. Thank God Bill was a real alcoholic. Because Bill Wilson didn't know anything about prayer and meditation either. And thank God he didn't. Most people that are really knowledgeable in those areas, when they write on them, they write so far over my head that I can't understand them. Bill couldn't do that. So rather than try to tell us what prayer and meditation is, he was forced to give us a few little suggestions that if we will follow those suggestions, each of us will develop our own life of prayer and meditation. And it'll be good enough that nothing or nobody can improve on it. Mine may not be exactly like yours, and yours may not be exactly like Joe's. But we'll develop our own life of prayer and meditation where we can begin to tap in 
to that sixth sense of direction. Bottom of page 85, he said, step 11 suggests prayer and meditation. We shouldn't be shy on this matter of prayer. Better men than we are using it constantly. It works if we have the proper attitude and work at it. It would be easy to be vague about this matter. He's saying, you know, I wish I didn't have to write on this. (laughs) Yet we believe we can make some definite and valuable suggestions. Now, he's going to tell us what we need to do when we go to bed at night. Here's the night time. It's in step 11. I know it's in 10 and 12 and 12, but it's in 11 in the big book. He's going to tell us what to do upon awakening. He's going to tell us what to do when we face indecision. He's going to tell us how to pray. He's going to tell us what to do when we are agitated or doubtful. And if we will follow each one of these little suggestions, then each one of us will begin to develop our own life of prayer and meditation. Let's see what we do when we go to bed at night. And now look carefully. And in this first paragraph on 86, you're going to see steps 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, and 9. Once again. He said, when we retire at night, we constructively review our day. Were we resentful, selfish, dishonest, or afraid? There's step four. Do we owe an apology? There's eight and nine. Have we kept something to ourselves which we should discuss with another person at There's once? five. Were we kind and loving toward all? What could we have done better? Maybe that's column four. We were thinking of ourselves most of the time, column five. Or were we thinking of what we should do for others, of what we could pack into the spring of life? But we must be careful not to drift into worry, remorse, or morbid reflection, for that would diminish our usefulness to others. After making our review, we ask God's forgiveness and inquire what corrective measures should be taken. And there's step six and seven again. Mm-hmm. So really, the nighttime thing when we go to bed is a repracticing of steps four, five, six, seven, eight, and nine. It's impossible to do four, five, six, seven, eight, and nine and stay the way you are. We made up a little inventory sheet that you might want to use just as an example. Basically, you could use anything you want. But on one side of that sheet, we put the personality characteristics of a self-willed person. We took the basic character defects out of the big book, selfish and self-seeking, dishonest, frightened, inconsideration. Went to the 12 and 12, picked up everything we could find there. And they're all offshoots of the top four, by the way. On the opposite side, we put the personality characteristics of God's will. Tried to find the opposite and put it on the right side. Now, all we're trying to do is get from the left-hand side of the sheet to the right-hand side of the sheet. It only takes just a few minutes to run down through this thing in the evening and see where we've been that day. I've never yet found myself on either side of the sheet completely. I find that I change these check marks from time to time. But what I do find is I'm gradually checking more on the right than I am on the left. This shows me what I need to continue to work on. And as I continue to work on those things, it gets better and better. And better and better. Now, I know one thing for sure. I am going to inventory. I am going to inventory. I've got one or two choices. I can wait until I'm so sick and so fouled up that I'm almost drunk and start trying to dig myself out from under that mess with the possibility of getting drunk. Or I can take a few minutes each day and keep myself in fit spiritual condition without that possibility of getting drunk. And I find that it takes less time to do it on a daily basis than it does to wait till I'm almost drunk and then start doing it. A very definite and valuable suggestion. There was a philosopher called Carl Sandburg. 
And Mr. Sandberg said, when a society fails, there's always one thing present. And that is that they forgot where they came from. And he said, when they forget where they came from, they forget where they're going and they get lost out there somewhere. If you and I fail, it'll be because we forget where we came from. And if we forget where we came from, we're going to get lost out there, too. And we're going to end up drunk as sure as anything. I think this is one of the best suggestions in the book. Five or ten minutes, a little daily inventory thing, in the evening before we go to bed. Now then, in the morning, on awakening... Now, he didn't say after we get up and have a cup of coffee. He didn't say after we're in the car driving to work. He said on awakening. I think that means just as soon as we wake up. Let us think about the 24 hours ahead. We consider our plans for the day. Before we begin, we ask God to direct our thinking, especially asking that it be divorced from self-pity, dishonest, or self-seeking motives. Under these conditions, we can employ our mental faculties with assurance. For after all, God gave us brains to use. Our thought life will be placed on a much higher plane when our thinking is cleared of wrong motives. Most of us jump out of bed. First thing we do is go to the bathroom. I had a guy tell me first thing he did was get on his treadmill. I said, man, you got a better bladder than I do. I go to the bathroom. We go to the bathroom, we relieve the body, and we go to the kitchen. And we get a cup of coffee and maybe a little food, and we feed the body. And after we fed the body, we go back to the bathroom, and you ladies fix your hair and your face, and we men do whatever we do, shave or whatever, taking care of the body. After we get the head taken care of, we go to the closet. And we pick out the clothes that we're going to wear that day. And we spend a lot of time on clothes. They've got to match. Everything just got to be perfect. And we clothe the body. We get ready to leave the house. If we've got a cat or a dog, we feed the cat and dog before we leave. And we go out the door and we lock the door. Because we want to be sure nobody gets our material junk away from us while we're gone. We go out to the car and we walk around the car and make sure the tires have all got air in them. We get in the car and sit down and turn on the switch and check the fuel level. And we start the car and we take off down the road. Now, we did all of those things that morning to take care of our body and all of our material stuff. What do we do about our mind? The mind's going to run the whole show all day long. Body doesn't run it, the mind runs it. If you and I spent one-tenth of the time on our minds as we spend on our bodies, my God, there's no telling what we could become. But you see, most of us won't do that. Bill suggests let's take just a few minutes in the morning early before we ever get out of bed. And let's let's feed the mind a little bit. let's, Let's check the air and the water in the mind before we ever get up and start the day and taking care of our body. Very definite, valuable suggestion. In thinking about our day, we may face indecision. We may not be able to determine which course to take. Here we ask God for inspiration, intuitive thought, or decision. We relax and take it easy. We don't struggle. We're often surprised how the right answers come after we've tried this for a while. Now, used to when I faced indecision, I'd be struggling with something up here and couldn't determine the answer or what to do. And my little thing up here, I've just got a little bitty computer up here. And it's old and it's wore out and it's got software and it's just not much good. And I'll struggle with it and all of a sudden it'll pop out on this side. And it'll say, we don't have the answer to that. And I grab it and I come in here and I stick it back in again. And it runs in there and struggles a little bit and says, we don't have the answer, and pops out the other side. And I grab it and stick it in there again, and finally it says, tilt. And it's just frustration, you know. The book says, let's quit doing that. They said, if we face indecision, 
Let's ask God for the right thought or action. Let's ask God for the intuitive thought. Realizing we don't know the answer. If I knew the answer, I wouldn't be struggling with it. So I ask God for the answer. And then it said, let's relax and take it easy. I don't think it means I lay down. I think it means I need to get my mind off of that subject. I've asked God for the answer, and if I'm struggling with it, God can't answer. Now, how do I get my mind off of that subject? Well, I go start mowing the grass, painting the house, doing the dishes, doing something worthwhile. And 30 minutes or an hour or two or three later, my mind goes back to that subject. There's information there I didn't have before. He said, why don't you call Joe and see what Joe thinks? I didn't think about that before. And I called Joe and explained the situation. I said, what do you think about this? And Joe's got the answer for me. And when I first started doing this, I used to say, my, wasn't it lucky I called Joe? <laughs> and the occasional thought or inspiration comes in. I have finally, finally, finally learned to do one of the hardest things I've ever done. I have finally learned to listen to people. Used to, I couldn't, I couldn't hear what you're saying. Because I'm waiting for you to shut up so I can say what I want to say. <laughs> I never could hear you before. But today I've learned that God answers these things for me through other people. He very seldom speaks to me direct. I know he does to some people, but he doesn't to me very often. But he speaks to me through other people. And maybe I'm standing in a supermarket checkout line. Two little ladies standing in front of me checking out. And they're talking, and I happen to tune, tune in to their conversation. And you know they're talking about what I was struggling with yesterday. They've got the answer for me. If I just learn to listen to people. And he doesn't use learned people. He uses ordinary people. And I've tried to learn to listen to everybody, not just the hot shots, but everybody that I come in contact with. It's amazing what this thing will do. Page 87 tells you about this. What used to be the hunch or the occasional inspiration gradually becomes a working part of the mind. We intuitively know how to handle situations that used to baffle us. Being still experienced and having just inexperienced and having just made conscious contact with God, it's not probable that we're going to be inspired at all times. We might pay for this presumption in all sorts of absurd actions and ideas. Nevertheless, we find that our thinking will, as time passes, be more and more on the plane of inspiration. We come to rely upon it. Practice, 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 practice. And these things get to be a habit. It really does work. Now he tells us how to pray. You know, communication is the beginning of all understanding, isn't it? Communication is the beginning of all understanding. To give you, for instance, when we started here last night, Friday night, we didn't know each other very well, did we? But we've been communicating, talking and listening. And we know each other better today than we did Friday night. Talking and listening. Communication. Now, if that would work with you and I, wouldn't that work with God? Talking and listening. Do a lot more listening than talking. You see, and communication is the beginning of all understanding. Page 87 says, We usually conclude the period of meditation with a prayer. That we be shown all through the day what our next step is to be. That we be given whatever we need to take care of such problems. We ask especially for freedom from self-will. And we're careful to make no requests for ourselves only. We may ask for ourselves, however, if others will be helped. We're careful never to pray for our own selfish ends. Many of us have wasted a lot of time doing that, and it doesn't work. You can easily see why. I used to pray, God, give me this, and God, get me a new car, and God, get me a new house. God, help me make more money. And if there's something I forgot to ask you for, well, give me that also. <laughs> give me, give me, give me. See, and I, those are very selfish prayers. You know why that won't work. 
praying only for the knowledge of his will for me and the power to carry that out. That's all I really need to know. Praying only for the knowledge of his will for me and the power to carry that out. He said, if it's circumstances warrant, we ask our wives. Several years ago, Phyllis there, sitting in her recliner, and I was sitting in mine, and pretty soon she asked me, she said, Honey, I said, I don't have time for that this morning. <laughs> you know how they are. She said, No, you old silly thing. What I want you to do is read this little meditation book to me and explain it to me. I said, Well, I can do that. So I read it to her and explained it to her a lot more than she wanted to know. <laughs> and the next day was the same thing. We discussed it. So that began a little thing for us that we do time to time as we talk and listen to each other and do some meditation. I've heard all my life that the people that pray together stay together. How long has it been since you and Phyllis have had a divorce? It's 29 years, honey. 29 years. More than that? How long? That's 31. Well, thank you. I'm glad to know that. But it's been a while. So that's good. (laughs) Well, anyhow, people that pray together stay together 31 years, okay? If our circumstances were, we ask our wives or friends to join us in morning meditation. We belong to a religious domination which requires a definite morning devotion. We attend to that also. If not members of a religious body, we sometimes select to memorize a few set prayers which emphasize the principles we're discussing. There are many helpful books also. Suggestions about these may be obtained from one's priest, minister, or rabbi. Be quick to see where religious people are right. Make use of what they offer. They came to me and they said, Charlie... Pray only for knowledge of His will and the power to carry that out. I said, well, how in the hell is He going to know what I want? (laughs) And they said, He's not interested in what you want. They said, He's interested in what you need. They said, Charlie, you've been trying to get what you want all your life. You've almost destroyed yourself in the process. That God knows what you need. And that's all you really need is what you need. And the only thing you really need is knowledge of God's will and the power to carry that out. And if you'll do that, everything will come out just right for you. And for me, that's happened over and over and over and over again. If I'd made a list in the very beginning of the things I wanted, and if I'd said, God, if you'll give me these, I'll never ask you for anything else. And if he had given me those things only, I would have shorted myself. Because he's given me not only those kind of things, but so much more. So much more than I ever dreamed would be possible, period. And all I need is knowledge of his will. And the power to carry that out. And knowledge of his will is very simple. He's always told the human race, you only got to do two things to be happy. He said, Put no other gods before me. Now, that could be money, power, prestige, sex, or anything else. And then he said, do what you can for your fellow man, and you'll be happy. Well, that's what I try to do in my life today. I try to put God first, and I try to do what I can for my fellow man, especially alcoholics. And the end result is I've received much more than I ever thought I could. Bottom of page 87. As we go through the day, we pause when agitated or doubtful and ask for the right thought or action. We constantly remind ourselves we're no longer running the show. Humbly saying to ourselves many times each day, Thy will be done. Now here's the results. We are then in much less danger of excitement, fear, anger, worry, self-pity, or foolish decisions. We become much more efficient. We do not tire so easily. For we're not burning up energy foolishly as we did when we are trying to arrange life to suit ourselves. And here's the shortest paragraph in the big book. It works. It really does. The paragraph is in entirety. We alcoholics are undisciplined. So we let God discipline us in a simple way we've just outlined. But this is not all. There's action and more action. Faith without works is dead. 
The next chapter is entirely devoted to step 12. And, of course, we're not going to try to go through the next chapter working with others. It takes too long. It takes too long. But I will say one thing. It is just as valid today as it was in 1939. It tells us just exactly what we need to do in working with other alcoholics. It tells us how to 12 step. Tells us what we need to be talking about. Tells us how to take care of them as they're getting sober. <coughs> Everything in that chapter is just as valid today as it was in 1939. Let's talk just a little bit about step 12. A multiple three-part step. First part of step 12 is the greatest promise to be found anywhere in the big book. Having had a spiritual awakening is the result of these steps. Not a result, not some result, but the result. I think that's a promise to me. That if I will apply the first 11 steps to the best of my ability, I'm guaranteed to have a spiritual awakening. Now, what is a spiritual awakening? Well, the appendix says it's a personality change sufficient to recover from alcoholism. Bill says in the 12 and 12, there's many kinds of spiritual awakenings. There are people in AA. But they've all got certain things in common. And that is that we're able to feel, believe, and do things we could never do before on our own strength unaided. And if that's the criteria, then I've had them. I feel things I've never felt before. I feel love, patience, tolerance, compassion, and goodwill. Before AA, I could have cared less about you. Oh, yeah, you could have some but only after I extracted what I wanted first. I always came first. I don't feel that way anymore. I believe things I've never believed before. I believe God is a kind and a loving God. I believe He stands ready to help any human being on earth. The instant they're ready to turn up on, to, to turn loose of self-will and turn back to Him. I believe He's a God of mercy, not a God of justice. Thank God he is and the God of justice. If he was, I wouldn't be here today. Some of you guys wouldn't be here today either if he was a God of justice. Surely, surely. He's pure mercy and pure love. I believe that with all my heart. I can do things I never could do before. By God, I can stay sober. I never could do that before. And because of that sobriety, I'm allowed to do many, many things that I always dreamed of being able to do, but never could do them. And I've been able to go places and see things and meet people and enjoy life that I never could before when I was drinking. So if that's the criteria, then I've had a spiritual awakening. But you don't get something for nothing. Excuse me. We are now charged with responsibility. Those of us have had the spiritual awakening, we're now charged with carrying this message. To other alcoholics. Not a message, not the message, not some message, this message. What is this message? It's very simple. Having had a spiritual awakening, I'm not like I used to be. I've had a spiritual awakening. And if you're new in AA, and if you're not feeling good, if you're thinking about doing a little drinking, or if you've been out there doing a little drinking, we know just exactly where you're coming from. That's where we came from. We came to AA and picked up the big book Alcoholics Anonymous. We applied the first 11 steps in our lives to the best of our ability. We've had a spiritual awakening and we're not that way anymore. Now, if you don't want to be that way anymore, then you do what we did. You come to AA and pick up the big book, Alcoholics Anonymous. Let us take you by the hand and walk with you as you apply the first 11 steps to your life. And you'll have a spiritual awakening. And you're not going to be that way anymore either. And that's the only message that AA's got. Some of us get to thinking we're healers. Some of us get to thinking we're marital and economic advisors. I don't know of any group of people in the world that screwed those things up worse than we did. We only know one thing. But we know it better than anybody in the world knows it. 
We know more about alcoholism than anybody alive. We're the only people that's ever experienced it. We know more about recovery from alcoholism than anybody alive. We're the only people that's ever done it. We are the experts, you and I, in the field of alcoholism. I have got to believe, as I look through our book and look through our history and the great history that Gail presented the other night, I've got to believe that God got tired of seeing people like us die back in the 1930s. I've got to believe that he took Bill and Bob, Dr. Jung, Dr. Silkworth, Abby Thatcher, and all the rest of them, and put this thing together so we could have it today. God's always worked with people through people. I'm convinced he picked all the first 100 so we could have this thing today. Now, if he picked the first 100 to do his job, and they're all dead now, Every one of them, they're all gone. If he picked them then, would he still not be picking them today? There's not an alcoholic in this room that ought to be here. Every one of us ought to be dead. Some of us several times. And we used to say, my, wasn't we lucky last night? Now, I don't think luck's got anything to do with it. I think God picked you out. He let you suffer your alcoholism so you would know what He wants you to know. And when He got ready to use you, then He removed the obsession to drink. And now the only question is, what are we going to do with it? Are we going to carry this message to others? Are we going to be of unique value to our fellow man? Now, God has given us the knowledge and the opportunity to avert death in countless thousands and thousands and thousands of people. Most people don't get that opportunity. I think we're the luckiest people in the world today. I've got to do one more thing now. We're through. I have to try to practice these principles in all my affairs. And what are the principles? I've heard people argue for days over this. Principle of one's that, and the principle of two's this, and the principle of no, I don't think that's true. In the twelfth step, Bill had already used the word steps. Having had a spiritual experience, or awakening is the result of these steps. And he didn't want to use steps again. So then he said and tried to practice these principles, or these steps, in all our affairs. In the twelve and twelve, he says... The twelve steps are a set of principles, spiritual in nature. So I'm sure he's talking about the steps. Easy for me to practice them in AA. I love you and I hope you love me and we're going to do our best not to hurt each other. But I'm only in AA an hour or two a day at the most. What do I do out there? Do I practice these principles in my home with my wife? Can I realize how powerless I really am over that lady? Can I realize the insanity of trying to control her knowing full well I can't? Can I make a decision to turn her will and her life over to the care of God as I understand it? <laughs> Can I inventory me and find those character defects that keep me trying to control her? Can I talk about that to another human being? Can I ask God to remove those? Can I make amends to her quickly when I've harmed her? There's times I'm ashamed of me. There's times I treat absolute strangers on the street with more courtesy than I treat my own wife and my own home. Now, just think, if I could practice there with her and she with me, we might pick up 10, 12, 14 hours a day. We can be peaceful, happy, and free. Can I do it with my children? If I can, what little time I've got left with them is good times. If I can't, I try to control and they resist. Now, we've got one daughter that's 51 years old, and I find myself still trying to tell her how to run her business. You know? <laughs> Can I do it on the job with my co-workers? You know, I might be happy on the job eight, ten hours a day if I can practice these principles there. Aren't we really saying God has given us the ability through our program to be peaceful, happy, and free 24 hours a day 
365 days a year. Make no mistake now, God's not going to do it for you. Other people aren't going to do it for you. But you, with God's help and the help of other people, can do it for yourself. I think we're the luckiest people on earth today. I really do. Let's go to page 164. Let's go to page 164. I remember reading in that other big, big book this story about these guys that were practicing these principles and carrying this message. And they were in a little town called Cernan. And after the guy was talked that night, they told me of a fellow they had locked in a cave up on the side of the hill. And he said, I want to go up and see this guy. And they said, no, you don't want to see him. The man, he's a selfish, self-centered, angry, hateful individual. And we got him locked up. He said, no, I want to go see him. He said, tell me what his name is. He said, well, his name is Legions, for he is many. You know, many defects of character. He said, well, I'm going to go up there and talk to him. So he went up and talked to him a little bit, cut loose the chains of resentment and fear and guilt, shame, and remorse, and set him free. He wrote a little step for us right here. And the guy asked him, he said, can I go with you and do what you do? And he said, no, legions. He said, I want you to stay here and tell people what happened to you. He said, I think it's called Pass It On. <laughs> on page 164, it says this. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you than us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who's still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right. And great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is a great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. We did that in steps 1, 2, and 3. Admit your faults to him and your fellows. We did that in 4, 5, 6, and 7. Clear away the records of your past. We did that in 8 and 9. Give freely what you find and join us. We do that through 10, 11, and 12. And we shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit. And you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May, May God, God bless, bless you and keep you until then. Thank, Thank you all you for much. letting us be here. We love you. We love you. Thank you.